Welcome to Counter Stories, a show by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Holly Lee, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of this podcast. I'm Don Eubanks, uh, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I share are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. Our usual co-host, Anthony, is uh, out on vacation celebrating his birthday, so we wish him a happy birthday and a safe travels back. We do have a special guest joining us today. Toussaint, would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Toussaint Morrison, and I am the special guest today, and yeah, I'm so happy to be on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Toussaint. Oh, so my mother and father, uh, they met during uh, protesting the Vietnam War, working for the Socialist Workers Union. And uh, they, uh, I was born in New Orleans. Um, so I grew up in a family of activists. Uh, my mother ran for, I believe, governor of Minnesota some time ago. We still have her poster hanging around somewhere. My father um, met Malcolm X, uh, speak in Detroit. Uh, and at his speech before his final speech, uh, wrote for the militants, worked in uh, New York for a long time. Uh, and myself, I grew up, um, you know, listening to Ice Cube and, and other types of uh, uh, revolutionary uh, lyricists. And I, I, I became a writer and I, I kind of really was inspired by, um, by Balfi, uh, a slam poet and spoken word artist uh, at South High School. Got into slam poetry, uh, began writing about um, uh, you know anti-white supremacy and you know um, fighting against racism and just addressing what it's like being you know uh, the only person of color in the room full of white people uh, in Minnesota. And then uh, started doing film, then media, and then once Floyd was murdered, kind of just uh, just took to the streets and started documenting what people uh, felt about what was going on and then started a company called Onsite Public Media uh, after I departed uh, very swiftly from Twin Cities Public Television. And um, yeah, we've essentially been taking up used cameras, film and photography, lighting gear and audio recording equipment and then turning it over to youth of color so they can get into film and tell their own story. And yeah, that's been the game. And then also doing a show called Good Morning Minneapolis, where it's essentially like the daily show, but it's you know, talking about things that happen around the city um, and whatnot. And where can folks find this show? They can find Good Morning Minneapolis at YouTube if they just type in Good Morning Minneapolis uh, or just um, go to YouTube and type in on-site public media. That's S-I-T-E for site. And you can find it on Instagram as well. This is our second in a series honoring our elders. As uh, many of you know, last week we did a show um, talking about the the legacy of Clyde Bellacore, who we lost earlier this year. And we've invited uh, Toussaint to join us to talk about another major community leader that we lost already this year, Mel Reeves. Um, Toussaint, how, how do you know Mel Reeves? Well, I first saw Mel Reeves at, I believe, with the, the coffee shop was Espresso Royale downtown. Uh, he was there all the time. And I, I remember seeing him at the... Uh, I think it was the Bandbox Diner, long time ago, and he would just be in there, just chopping it up with students, talking, uh, and just educating. And he, I just remember him, him doing the most talking in those situations. And he, he was just, 
you know, he was a library. He just kept going and just, get, you know, doling out lessons. And I remember like listening over what he was saying a few times and being like, holy crap, you know, like this is stuff that I could really take back to my sociology class at the University of Minnesota when I was studying there uh, with one of my father's friends, uh, August Nymphs. And it, he just seemed to be a bevy of knowledge. And I didn't uh, meet him officially until I believe it was June or July of uh, 2020 when he had taken uh, kind of a leave from this Mother's March that he had put together with uh, the help of Ashley Quinones and other amazing organizers. And he could not be a part of it because his grandson had just passed away uh, tragically. And he called me and he, he asked me if I could help lead chants going, on the, going along the way to the Capitol. And so I got in touch with some of the organizers and that's what we did. Wow, there's so much there to unpack. Uh, so glad that you're with us, Toussaint. Can I take you back, you know, a little bit to your introduction with regard to growing up uh, as a child of civil rights activists? And we know that Mel Reeves himself, in addition to being a community editor for the Minnesota Spokesman and Recorder, he he himself was a civil rights activist. So. So help us kind of understand those dynamics between the two of you and, and um, how you just viewed your, your time together. Well, I think the, the label or term or brand of activists, to me, um, it, it's something that I would assume in, in Mel's regard, it's not for the moment. You know, it's something that's, that's, kind of the, the, the calling and what they're doing, living and breathing like every day. And it, it, I, I really truly believe Mel felt called to do it, but also persisted with it. And so the relation, the point of relation between him and I that, that I found right away was I, I knew early on when a lot of this started to uh, go down and pour into the streets that it wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't be something that was going to be for the year. Uh, or for two years or a few months for me, and that to to be uh, in conversation with Mel or to be uh, kind of uh, hopefully to be cut from the same cloth as Mel would mean that this is this is part of your life's work. You know, this isn't something that just is temporary or goes away. And that's part of my mother's and my father's work. Those conversations don't go away. The lens that they view um, white supremacy, capitalism, uh, colonialism. Um, all, all of that, it doesn't go away. You know, that's it, just the way you, it's, you see the country for what it is through the legacy that has been led up till now. And Mel was always very, very acutely aware of where certain things came from, where certain words came from, and what, what the end action, what the end goal was to each action that he participated in. So it meant a lot to me to even be called by Mel, um, because I I I'd never thought that I was even in the same you know lane or 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 room as him. I'd just see him out and I'd be like, wow, that's a that's a bad brother, man. You know, and I just would you know would kind of part ways. And it was the same way with like Nakima and Monique Colors Doty and uh, you know Kim Handy Jones. I I just never approached these people and until they spoke to me first because I just didn't think it was my place. You know, to be like, hey, you know, I'm in this too. Let's talk. I just I just kind of followed along and, until. Uh, I think that he viewed me as some value or support to some of the actions he was putting on. Mm, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Well, but there's, I mean, 
you you really touched on on um so many different salient i think conceptions and ideas um that you know i think we have kind of tossed around on on previous counter stories but the fact that um the fact that you know many of us many of us find ourselves we live this experience you know my whole life has not really been in the forefront but every day i live and breathe this um my it, it's like every ounce of my fiber rejects the reality of what to which i was born and i've spent my entire life trying to change trying to make effective change uh not just for myself but for my people and we all i think you know many of us go about it in different ways i think i elected to try to do it through the work the various work that i've done um and trying to make in, in small incremental changes through policy through this through that um always with that anti-racist um racial social justice kind of spearhead and and to hear you you know even um and I agree with you 100% that that we we did a show here on counter stories where we we talked about we had another spoken word person here. Oh, um, Mon Quaynandozi. Yes, I mean you know, and then she she came up with a metaphor where uh, we ended up calling that show the Hub and Spoke, and we were talking about how we as communities of color and Amer- and Indigenous American Indian community, how we have these conversations. But everything, every we all seem to kind of revolve around the hub, which is the white, the white dominant culture, and even in the language we use, uh, the Malax band got a Rosetta Stone, and so I'm at my older age, I'm going to try to learn my language. It's a very difficult language, and it it's difficult because I think in English, trying to learn my language as the other way around, and so. It's going to be a chore, but even in that, you know, the words that we use, so, you know, the description that we're activists, what, what the hell is that? We're just, we're just trying to make our lives better, right? And so, so I agree with that 100%. You know, I never had the opportunity, I think, to meet Mel Rees. I've heard a lot about him. You know, I read the Minneapolis spokesman for years. And, and so that paper is influential in the African American community, of which I'm a part also. And so I've heard of Mel and I know I have, uh, many other acquaintances that I grew up with who have been, who have probably were there by his side. And it's unfortunate that I, I don't think I ever had the opportunity to meet him. But what I've heard about Mel has been, um, tremendous, extremely tremendous. I think it's one of those situations, like, it was one of those, you know, I, I knew him from his journalistic work, right, being a person in media. 
And so I respected him a lot through that. I didn't know a, a lot about the amount of activism, quote unquote, that he did in community, the boots on the ground, you know. I talked with Rose McGee, who was a good friend, and she was telling me about how he had helped her through a crisis that she was living and all the things that he did for her. And I was like, that's amazing. He's, he wasn't just a journalist. I'm Rose McGee, and I live in Golden Valley, Minnesota. I really got to be one of those benefactors of how people talk about Mel being there to fight. Um, it was about 2012, I believe, when my home had got into foreclosure, and I was fighting for it. It was something referred to as dual tracking, where on one hand, the bank said they were working with you, but on the other hand, they sold the house right out un from under me without my knowing. So it was quite quite a fight that went on for close to a year and a half. And Mel was one of the people who just stepped right in and was very supportive. We went to court at least five times. We had several demonstrations, uh, you know, public protests and various um, rallies. He was always there, didn't care what the temperature was, and not just for me. Because the thing about doing this kind of work I discovered was even though I was fighting for my home, I was also a voice for others who were fighting for theirs. Warrior is a word that has been used for him. Courageous is another one. Stuff has to get done that folks don't know what to do with or they're afraid. It's like John Lewis is, you know, getting into good trouble. You know, to get into good trouble, you got to be a little bold and you can't just be, um, you know, can't, stuff can't be status quo. And that's how Mel was. He did not go with status quo. These are the people you need to show up when the real deal happens. And it's one of those things where I always just assumed at some point we would meet and, you know, talk about our work and. I, I should have done this sooner, right? I should have taken the opportunity while we had him to do this. It's like it's like Prince, right? I was always like, oh, well, I'll have any time to see Prince. I don't need to go to his concert this time. You know, he'll have another concert and I'll go see him then. It's like, you know, I, I have to stop telling myself that I'll have time to do this with all of these amazing people because, I mean, that's, the, that's why we're doing the, the series, right? Because we've been losing these giants in our community and we need to be honoring them while they're with us and not waiting. And, you know, like I said last week when we did the, the episode about Clyde Bellacourt, Clyde, Clyde fought till the very end, but so did Mel. He was doing interviews from his hospital bed, like still trying to get the message out there you know, about vaccines and how important that is. And especially because he was looking and sending the message to the, to the Black community. He was talking to his community about it, you know, and, and still fighting to the very end, just like Clyde. I'm curious, do you ever look at the work you do with Counter Stories as like similar to that, like creating an archive of conversations that people can tap into and touch on like later on? Like, conversations that I think we all would have hoped, you know, like if we could tap into podcasts, if they had existed, you know, in the sixties or seventies, you know, like, like that would be amazing. Right. Like, do you ever look at the work that you're doing as like, you're kind of creating that archive? I love that idea. I think in part, the answer is yes. I mean, we have uh, a national audience 
And we've had a national audience now for some time, not only through Ampers, but also through uh, NPR, which syndicated our podcast and, and took it nationally with NPR. And we have received um, communication from listeners across the country that say that it's been very educational for them to listen to our segments and asking us for transcripts, uh, very much with the idea that it could be converted into a curricula, you know, in this educational setting. And hopefully uh, beyond that, I think it's a the way you framed it, though, of course, is even more powerful, especially as we think about um, doing this series on our elders and giving them flowers, so to speak, while they're with us and not waiting until they're no longer with us. Um, Tusa, I'm curious with regard to your uh, gift of being a spoken word artist and whether you have how you have with your both hats on, right? Or your many hats on, I should say, not only as a spoken word artist, but also certainly a civil rights uh, champion um, and educator. What, if you can share with us what your emotions were when you first heard of Mel's passing? Well, I think with all those titles, it, it doesn't really, there's none of those really, you don't really think about any of that or I didn't, wasn't aware of any of it. Uh, when it happened, it was more so, it was more so, I think it was like relative to like, to when my grandmother passed because there's several people, I mean, death works in, in, in just, you know, unbelievable ways and literally unbelievable in the sense that, you know, and I, I wrote this in a, a piece once, it's like, you know, where you park your bike or even when you get your car towed, you know, and you go out to that spot and you're like, wait, what? I, you, it's supposed to be there. That's the thing's supposed to be there. And it's not. And with Mel, it, Nakima had texted me in the morning and said, you know, I need, uh, she called me and then texted me. I was actually hanging out with a friend who's, who's, Mother had just passed, like on on an un, untimely uh, passing, and um, I woke up and I I just I knew right away when she had sent me the text, and it it hurt. It, it wasn't hurt or pain. It was ultimate disbelief of a reality and a world where Mel didn't exist or wasn't drawing breath from, and it wasn't, you know, oh he's gone. I can't talk to him. It's it wasn't, oh, you know, I, it was, it wasn't immediately anything like that. It was, man, that, that was, uh, that was somebody I really wish everyone could have met at some point or heard speak at some point. And Mel, Mel's value as a human being, being present anywhere, even when he wasn't speaking was just a reassurance that it's probably going to be okay we're going to make it through this, this march, or we're going to make it through this, this, this action, you know, Mel's here, you know, it's, we're, we're, we're good. And, you know, his, his presence alone was just, it was just of a value that goes without words. You just really can't put it into words. And it's, it's one of those things that just made you feel trust and safety. And now that being said, learning of his passing, 
it it's still resonating. You know, I'm I'm sure everybody on this on this call and podcast can can empathize with that where the sense of loss it resonates and it ripples all the time and i think that we all feel that even through our ancestors whether we know it or like it or not and and it definitely catered it definitely um lends to our actions and how we speak and how we carry ourselves but with mel there was something that hit me really really uh immensely once things got going and people started speaking i was like man i had just talked to him right before he passed and as we went to the memorial and as we went to the funeral he had talked to a bunch of people. I mean, Mel was nothing but on the phone. I was honored that I was one of those people who he called on Christmas Day. We all thought that he was, you know, making a turnaround. <clears throat> Christmas Day, I text him and said, Merry Christmas. Then he calls me. <laughs> and he's calling me and we're talking. And like I said, I, I, I'm thinking, you know, all right, I'm really special. I'm getting the call. Only now to learn that Mel was calling people all day. <laughs> and so the tenacity, the courageousness, the perseverance, all of those things I think of now when I think of Mel Reeves. And I just want his legacy to continue. I don't want people to be all hyped up now about him going. And then, you know, in a few months, we can't let that happen. We can't let him be forgotten. He was on the phone talking to everybody all the time. I mean, he was he was calling people to check in on them. The, the, and and the, uh, the big thing that I took away right away was that he called me. <clears throat> there were three actions during the trial of Kim Potter. And the second one, I wasn't going to make it to it because I just there was something in me that I there's certain actions where I just I'm coming to this weird place where I just it's. I have to figure out, you know, like, are, are you are you fully in this or are you not in this? Uh, are you, can you be fully present? And like for that one, there was just some other stuff going on and other work that I wanted to do to assist the trial or awareness for the trial. And he called me during that day and he said, hey, I just want to let you know. And he sounded really groggy and subdued. And he said, I can't make it. He said, but I just want I want you to uh, I just want you to you know let the right family know that I'm sorry I couldn't make it. And that was Mel. You know, he was in a hospital bed. His lungs were filling with water he was you know possibly aware that he was at the the here all end all of this world in life and he's saying hey i'm sorry i can't make it there for the family like that's that's who mel was mel wasn't oh woe is me oh i hope you think of me send me your prayers he was like i'm sorry i can't be there for the family he was truly what it meant to be a man of the people like a human of the people like a community member and so once i started gathering that that's when you know, the understanding and realization of just the amount, just the gaping uh, void that he leaves that is up to us to fill. That That's when I realized that, which was, was pretty uh, overwhelming. So a couple of things just to point out clarification for listeners who may not be familiar with Mel Reeves' um, cause of death. He died from complications resulting from COVID. Uh, he ultimately caught um, pneumonia and then lost his battle with life at that point. And as you said, Toussaint, he was in the hospital at that point. Uh, for listeners who are unfamiliar with your reference to actions, we are, as, as co-hosts here, very familiar, but help our listeners understand what actions are and, and the power of actions and community. 
Well, an action could be one of several things. And for me, just in short, it's an action could be <clears throat> asserting your your body, your voice, or, you know, a technological device to be present, you know, during to possibly disrupt the status quo of uh, government or uh, assembly of power. And so usually an action, to my understanding of what I've been a part of, is when you show up to um, a um, essentially, you know, a, you show up to a government institution, you uh, speak on what's happening there and why it's happening, and then how it could be better and what, what people actually deserve and what justice is and what it's not. Uh, and, and it's essentially to just give a voice to people where otherwise there's just not going to be anybody else to give it to them. They're not going to get that platform. So it's essentially taking your first amendment right to speak up and say, Hey, that something's not right here. Something is absolutely way off here. Like this, there's something that we should see justice once this trial is done. And for the listeners that don't know, I'm sure you've talked about this already. Kim Potter was the officer who, uh, former officer who shot and killed Dante Wright. But that being said, an action is essentially where I saw Mel. It was, you know, showing up for a protest and a march in the streets to demand justice for Jacob Blake, to demand justice for uh, Dante Wright, to demand justice for George Floyd. Um, and what Mel was a big proponent of, and, and I'm sure you've heard this before, Luz, is reopening all the cases. That was a big thing that he was about. And we actually just touched on that yesterday. Uh, well, I think two days ago um, regarding uh, Marcus Golden, um, who was shot and killed by the St. Paul Police Department, was reopening all the cases. And as soon as Mel passed, you know, we looked at a bunch of um, footage that we had of his speeches. And, and several times he talks about reopening all the cases, you know, like getting getting back to what happened and giving it the same attention as if it were filmed, as it were with George Floyd, or giving it the same attention uh, as if, you know, it were filmed as it was with Dante Wright. And so the, that was that was really a repeated thing that I, I, I would hear him speak at a lot of the actions. So Tissa, one of the things that we've been asking folks as we do this series, and I think you've talked a lot about it, especially, um, you know, as you talk about reopening old cases, what is Mel's legacy? What should the the new generation, right? The youth you're working with, you're giving cameras to, what 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 is Mel's legacy? What should we learn from him and his work? I don't think I can, you know, speak on what Mel's legacy was. I think it, his legacy, once you once you that's 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 the point, right? Is to like read his stuff, listen to his speeches, which you know, you'll find King Demetrius Pendleton, Racial Justice Network, you know, we'll, we'll have a lot of his speeches being uh, re-uploaded re, uh, at on-site public media. Um, I guess it's like everybody took something different maybe a little bit from Mel, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I think the overarching theme was show up, you know, mm-hmm. just show up. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't not mm-hmm. show up. Don't let anybody ever tell you that protesting can't get anything done. Um, you know, I, I watched... I watched a group of people show up to Pete Orpit's house <clears throat> and then they had, next thing you know, they have, instead of manslaughter two, it's manslaughter one for Kim Potter. I watched a group of people show up to Mona Doman's house, the, um, the head of uh, U.S. Marshals, and next thing you know, she's 
she's leaving her job and, you know, there's a person of color that's getting put in the job after the marshals killed Winston Smith and went, you know, silent as a, as a, uh, as a, as a, as a mute film, you know, it just was, it, it, you can't, you can't say that it doesn't get something done. And, and Mel was always a big advocate for that. But one thing that I took away, I took away from Mel's, Mel's speeches. And I know that he, you know, he got the, I am somebody from earlier speeches, uh, but I never heard him say, I'd never heard that chant until he said it at a uh, Stop Asian American Pacific Islander hate uh, action. And it was after several Southeast Asian women had been uh, murdered in uh, Georgia. And Mel showed up to the action. And I was, I was like, okay. And a, 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 a Southeast Asian woman asked us to put it on. She was leading it. She just needed help getting the soundtrack and stuff. And Mel showed up and he started, and this is just who he was. He started talking about the uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act. He started talking about um, con- Japanese concentration camps. And like he was just able to do that and jump in and just dole out that type of knowledge. It was amazing. And But then he said, as people of color, they want you to believe that you're not somebody. Or if you do this, this, that, and the third, then you can be like them and be somebody. And like them, he meant white people. You know, he and it was this idea of whiteness being held over our heads as like some type of validation or something. And he said, you don't need that validation. Now I want you to repeat after me. And he said, and he said, I am. And everybody said, I am. He said, somebody and somebody. And you have all these, you got all these, uh, these, these, these Korean kids and, and Chinese kids and Japanese kids in the audience and their parents and everybody's just shouting, I am somebody. And it was like, what? Like it was, you just did not expect that. But one of, one of the, the themes and legacies I take from him is that you don't need permission from uh, the colonizers or the powers that be to know or believe that you are somebody and that you are just by, uh, by birthright, you know, that you are somebody. So, yeah. Now, Toussaint, that example immediately brought to my mind um, the uh, black sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee during the civil rights movement. Uh, with posters, I am a man, mm-hmm. right? Um, very similar to what you're saying is um, having, trying to make others see the humanity in all of us, in each of us, no matter what our backgrounds are. And it's that denial of humanity that often um, allows this complicit behavior to occur unchecked, you know, whether it's by law enforcement, or quite honestly, any governmental institution that refuses to understand the principles of of equity and being able to treat folks with respect and honor uh, each person for who they are rather than seeing them as, you know, a liability of some sort or a drain on their resources. Absolutely. And and, and you working in where you work in, I mean, you're obviously trying to work towards there being a humanity, like a humanity to the law, right? You know, like, mm-hmm. and it, obviously it hasn't been that throughout the history of this country, but you want that to be there. You know, you want there to be a humanity for everybody uh, that, that, that is under the law, you know, like everybody wants to be treated as a human or be, you know, valued as a human, right? Absolutely. Well, Toussaint, you, you know, uh, what you just covered, what you just talked about, that example was so powerful. And it's 
it's the I think you did an excellent job of talking around uh, the legacy that Mel Rees created because it was the very it was the same um, same type of legacy we talked about last week um, about Clyde Bellacourt. Yeah, and you know, and, and in that personally, you know, when Clyde and Aim first hit the scene was during those formative years for me personally, because I'm old enough to have been around when that started. And it, 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 that, that for me was like during junior high school. And those are very formative years for many of us. And the legacy that Clyde instilled in many of us uh, Native American kids was a sense of pride because for the first time in our life, we were hearing something positive for the first time about Native Americans coming from our own community. Anything else prior to that was, as I mentioned last week, was John Wayne pulling a gun, firing one time, and six of us falling off a horse. So, you know, that's all I knew, is is that we were the impediment to the Wild West. And Don, I want to ask you, when Bellacourt first started speaking out, how was he received immediately by white communities and like the general? Oh, are you population? kidding me? He was hated. He was exactly, he, exactly. And, I mean, and so, oh, I, it, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was, he was, you know, he was, and and the, he was attacking the white world and telling them, no, we're not what you say we are. And so, while there were others who were saying the same thing. In print, for instance, Vine Deloria had been already starting to put out his books, but it was Clyde, it was Russell Means and them who took that next step and put it into action. And I think that is where that legacy, because not only were we hearing this, but they were taking action, much like Mel was doing. And it's that action that pulls in others, but at the time, um, the white establishment, you know, the uh, much like every other group that has risen from our communities, be it the Black Panthers, uh, I think we mentioned the uh, Brown Berets from the uh, Mexican community on the West Side, you know, there were other types of groups who were standing up for their rights and we were, and they were uh, characterized as militants. So at that time, activists wasn't even a term that was being used favorably for what w- was happening. It was militants. We were militants. Yeah, and people and, understand uh, that Martin Luther King was not really beloved, you know, in his time either. Like these people, speak it. Yeah, go <laughs> ahead and speak it. Let's hear it. <laughs> people I was were not. The same thing. Go for not, it. People, he was not as uh, uh, beloved and um, oh, you're talking popular. about from the white folks, correct? Yeah, no, of course. Of course. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, they couldn't even, stand Martin that, Luther King because of, because of what the idea is that when you have any faction of people of color speaking out or taking agency in 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 uh, connection with the First Amendment, the First Amendment then becomes questionable to white society. It's well, no, whoa, 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 and it's. I, I mean, I'll, I'll hearken it to this with like there was this TikTok that came up and it said, um, if colonizers' uh, great great grandparents could 
see them today, they'd be so disappointed. And people then filled in the comments and it said, whose lives matter? And then it said, <laughs> and it said other things like when regards of like, if, if like white folks from like the early 1900s saw it now, they'd be like, who's, who's marching up to the government, the, the Capitol right now? Who like, uh, who just got prosecuted? Like it, it would baffle them. Mm-hmm. It, it would, it would, mm-hmm. it, it just would, it would blow their minds because it's, there was no humanity or we were not considered humans or valued as humans leading up. And so then when you have folks like Martin Luther King or even Clyde Bellacourt, the idea is that it's, well, now this has gotten out of hand, you know, like we gave them the vote, we gave them houses, you know, we let them rent houses. Isn't that enough? No. I mean, folks of color want to be treated like humans. And that, that concept for white people can, it, it, it can be so, uh, unfounded or or so in their blind spot that they're not aware of their own uh inherent bias racism and um and and, and lack of uh lack of awareness to people of color as humans that it, it just becomes immediately resistant so when people are like ah yes yeah, martin luther king day and it's like yeah but your grandfather wasn't a fan of him they can't they can't like they can't grasp it you know so to start on that point, uh, there's also that double standard, right? That the First Amendment applies to white folks without question. But then when you start having large congregations of black folks or other BIPOC folks in mass in the streets, all of a sudden the First Amendment is starting to get scrutinized uh, and limited in, in ways that it shouldn't be. I also think about in the 1960s when the Black Panthers showed up on the Capitol steps in California, uh, there were about 30 Black Panthers who showed up with guns in tote. NRA was not defending them. And in fact, you know, they, that was one of the, the few, one of the early starts of um, the conversations for gun regulation is when 30 Black Panther leaders showed up on the Capitol steps. Again, the double standard, right, is that the NRA only chooses to protect those who are of a certain hue. Uh, And as someone had said uh, on social media, um, (laughs) of a mayonnaise hue, you know. (laughs) Luz, you can just go ahead and say it. You can go ahead and say it, Luz. Come on now. I mean, Ronnie, Ronnie Reagan Reagan was governor of uh, California at the time. And he went in and and they uh, changed the gun laws. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, you can now. I mean, you armed 30 black men who knew the law and knew they could carry. And Ronnie Reagan immediately went to the state capitol and got that law changed. This is a history lesson, okay, right here. What we were talking about earlier about using this in curriculum, you guys, this is why, right here. Exactly. exactly. But, and but, you can this even, is, but this is what they want to whitewash. Well, you right? can even tie it right. into local politics right now. In St. Paul, the city council is meeting to possibly outlaw protesting to where you would have to send in a, you would have to send in a, a proposal seven days out before you show up and do a protest. So if the St. Paul Police Department shoots and kills somebody, got to wait seven days before we can do a protest, guys. Otherwise, it's illegal. 
So literally, I mean, that's that is the that's the the tone and era that we're setting. But and even with voting, with voting as well. I mean, you look at it right now. They're trying to. There's a a, a ton, a plethora of a, uh, anti-voting laws going through uh, as well. But the rules don't. The rules apply to everybody until people of color are inserted. Until we're we're taking on our agency, then it's like whoa, 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 whoa. Let's let's seven day proposal to protest or, you know, this is that and a third to own a gun. Um, and to bring it back to Mel, the thing that I think was so important and amazing is that in Mel's final years, he we had the opportunity. We had the utmost privilege to see him documented and recorded as much as possible in those two years, more than his entire life. And so there's more footage of Mel and what he spoke of and what he stood for in those times because of protesting, because of the First Amendment, and because um, even even the elements that give way to this podcast existing, because folks of color have technology, and we have cameras, and we have uh, microphones, and we have the ability to assert ourselves as voices into uh, the internet and mainstream airwaves. We had the utmost privilege to see him, you know, in his final years, which I think was something really special uh, and something big that I think that I that I took away from. We asked you, our listeners, to call in with some of your reflections on Mel's legacy. Be sure to follow us on Facebook to see when we make these asks. My name is King Demetrius Pendleton. Uh, my city of residence in St. Paul. How I really met Mel. We was in the um, Black Men and Women Reading Club that was at North Point that was being um, put on by Professor Ezra Highland. And we would read various books. Um, it was just um, totally amazing. And that was one of the spaces. And we were basically speaking um, about the situation of how these people was writing these books and how impactful these books were. And Mel would always give his um, analysis, if you will, about what he thought about the book. And it was very interested to learn and sit with him and, um, you know, learn from him. But Mel Reeve to me was like, not just a mentor, he was kind of like a father to me. Uh, Mel was a, a, a gentle um, giant. And not only that, his impact on a nation of people um by teaching the youth, uh, when you get your resources, you need to go to three different resources and make sure that all of them are saying the same thing. And you know how to basically give your analysis when you're spreading power to truth and making sure they fact check what you're saying. Mel was very thorough about what he said and how he said it and made sure that he didn't offend or offend anyone when he used this pen which was his weapon of choice. Anywhere he went, he spoke and he spoke with compassion. Uh, Mel Reed could have did anything that he wanted to do, but Mel Reed chose to stick with the community. Um, in Edinburgh community, you get the word unity out of it as well. And he wanted to be make sure he was unified in unity with his community. He wanted to make sure change came about. Um, I'm so thankful that he was able to see um, the Derek Chauvin conviction uh, with um, George Floyd um, uprise, also the Kim Parter um, conviction. Um, it's, it's just so many things that we were working on 
and for him to um, pass um, so sudden was very um, discombobulating to a nation of people and very, um, it was very um, shocking to say the least. You know, there's a adage that we've always said, I've always said, and I'm sure others have heard this, but we spend our, I've spent my entire life fighting the system to try to make it, to try to make it treat us more humane. And whenever we learn the rules, they change the rules. Yep. And we're seeing that again and again. We're seeing it with with voting. Now we're, you know, I, I know there's debates going on to criminalize protesting, to um, put fines, to put all kinds of obstacles in place to prevent us from going out and fighting for our rights. It 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 mm-hmm. sickens me that at, in uh, 2022 that we're still doing this. I mean, whenever we learn how to play the game, they change the game on us. Well, the worst thing, like, for me is, like, Or they attempt to. Folks like Mel and Clyde, they fought all this in the 60s, and then they were fighting all this in the 2020s, right? Like, you know, it, it breaks my heart to think that you know, they had to fight all their life yeah. for voting rights. And it's like, oh, we thought we got it. And now they're being taken away again, you yeah. know. But, I mean, if you look at just, I mean, the three of us didn't have personal relationships with Mal. But we saw the impact that he had on the community when he when he passed. I mean, all of our social feeds were you know, covered with tributes and words about Mel. And I think, you know, that just, that itself shows you the giant that he was with that and his work um, in, in social justice and all that it impacted all of our communities, right? It wasn't just for the black community, the work that he did, it impacted all of our communities. And so, you know, I'm, I'm very saddened that I never got to hang out with him. And it, it's a lesson for me to like, you know, make those relationships while I, well, I have a chance, and, you know, that's why we want to do this show, to honor our elders, and so. Real quick, Haile, can I ask you one question before we sign sure. off? Sure. Yeah, for sure. For everybody, knee-jerk, just response. Who was an elder that you remember in your family? Just real quick, and just say one thing about him. Just go around. Don, who's an elder real quick that you remember and meant something to you? Go. Uh, that would be my grandfather and uh, on my mom's side. and um. He he was someone who who um well it's kind of hard to That's to okay, say it very good. quick but but my my grandfather my mom's my mom's dad was someone who was um in his way teaching me who I was as a young native young native boy when I was about 10 and he would take me while we would go check his traps and he would he was telling me stories essentially he was telling me my line of ancestry my land, my line of lineage because it's all verbal mm-hmm. our history was passed down verbally and so he was passing it down to me at the time i thought he was just telling me stories it actually took me a few years to realize he was telling me who i was and wow. where i'd come from that's amazing Luz, who's somebody you remember 
Very similar to Don's, my paternal grandfather. Uh, we were living in Chicago as kids, and my grandparents were in Mexico. So we would only see them at best once a year uh, if we were able to make the drive from Chicago to northern Mexico, Monterrey, Mexico in, in particular. And um, we would go, and sometimes we, our cousins would meet us there. They'd make the trip, or our cousins from, Chicago, uh, from Texas, uh, San Antonio, would, would meet us. And my grandfather would start telling stories as well, much like um, Don's grandfather with regard to our lineage. And my siblings, I have four siblings, uh, and then my cousins would be outside playing and I wouldn't. I would sit right next to my grandfather to listen. And my gran my own parents would uh, reprimand me and tell me, go and be a kid, go play. And this is grown up stuff. And before I could say anything, my grandfather would come to my defense and say, look, she's here because she wants to learn. And she is learning. She's sitting here learning quiet. Let her learn. Let her understand who she is. And I'll never forget that. And we had this unspoken Bond. I mean, I never asked them, could I or, you know, should I? It was just this connection that we had to learn about our lineage and the struggles that he went through as a young man in, in Mexico. Haile, finally, who's somebody that you remember? You're going to make me cry. Just, uh, don't, okay, don't okay, make me cry. Um, I mean, off the top of my head, like immediately, it was um, a mentor of mine who we lost to COVID as well mm. recently, um, Dr. Ku Yang. He was a professor in California, and I met him kind of doing a lot of work um, bringing, um, you know, kind of teaching youth about like our Hmong heritage. And he was very much a leader in doing that. And he... The first time I ever went to Thailand, I had just finished college and I was traveling alone. And he like set me up with all the people I needed to meet in Thailand who took oh. care of me, housed me, drove me around the country. You know, um, he, every time he came to Minnesota, we got together. I consulted him before I got married. I consulted him before I quit my, my full time job um, to start my own company you know, he had this amazing story. I invited him here to speak at my brother's graduation. He had this amazing story of how he he studied so hard in, in the old country and came to the U.S. and worked in New Orleans, actually, where he picked up, you know, because he, he knew French. And that was the only way that he could work was in the kitchen in a, in a New Orleans restaurant because they spoke French and how that really you know, led him to becoming like one of the first Hmong professors in America and just how meaningful he was to the community, but to me personally and guiding me through my career and my personal life. That's really awesome. And, it, and it, the through line through all this is that, you know, as much as Mel meant to me and all these people that you speak of that means something to you, there are many people that look up to you in the same way, like all three of you. So, I mean, really... You know, give flowers while they're due if we learn anything from this and, and know that there's people that look up to y'all doing amazing work. So keep it up. Wait a minute. You're not supposed to be praising us on our own damn podcast, <laughs> Tucson. But thank I, you, I, bro. I, I mean, I appreciate it. But before, hey, I understand and I really do appreciate it, man. But before we go, who is the person in your life? That was that my question you. too. You can't yes. get all other you than now. I'm going to put on time here. I, you got to run. You don't have much show left. 
No, 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 no. <laughs> no, mine would be my father, uh, Derek Morrison, who lives in New Orleans still. And he um, he had a lot of cryptic lessons. He's a, he's a very stoic man. He's from Detroit. Uh, only the strong survive, if if any at all. And he he just had a very, very traumatic and like, you know, uh, rough come up. Detroit in the you know 60s and 70s like it's 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 nothing to play with but there are certain lessons in like very few words that he would say to me as at the age of 18 or 17 or 19 uh because when my parents split they divorced at the age of four my mother took my sister and I to Minnesota and he stayed in New Orleans um and not really by choice but you know it, it just was what it was but he would say certain things that I'd be like, this guy's crazy. And then later on, I'd be like, oh my God, that's the truest thing that that applies to everything that just happened. And he was just, he was prophetic in that way. And he still is. And he, the, as, as, as you said earlier, Don, it's a lived experience. My father, once he retired, you know, he was having, playing cards with his uh, old coworkers and they're like, ah, Ricky, don't you uh, don't you uh, reminisce about you know working at the factory? And he's like, no, no, I'm fine here, advocating for uh, you know folks without health insurance uh, since the you know the the hospital got shut down in Katrina and they made the excuse that oh it's untenable and we have to put up a new one for people with insurance uh, when they shut down Charity Hospital. And he just is he's out here you know seventy something year old man sending out you know uh, you know an email every 72 hours regarding justice in the country. And he just does amazing work. And he's kind of, he's really the standard I hold myself to when it comes to just being present, you know? And Mel really reminded me of my dad, to be honest. So there's that. Tucson, it was such a pleasure to have you on this show, even though you made me cry, but you made me laugh as well. So. Okay. Yeah. You got to come back, young man. I'm Halili, owner of the other media group and counter stories producer. Don Eubanks. Associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Banner with Jibway Indians. Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I share are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And our special guest? Tucson Morrison, thank you so much for having me. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For a full conversation, please visit counterstories.com.